You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast, practical wisdom for everyday life. I'm Justin Vakula, and this is episode 56, Conversation with Massimo Piliucci. Today's special guest joins me to talk about practical applications of Stoicism, how Stoic philosophy can benefit us in modern times, and address misconceptions about Stoicism. We explore whether Stoicism encourages us to suppress or ignore emotions, what it means to be virtuous, what a good life looks like, Stoic view on wealth, whether Stoics are killjoys, social approval, insults, being offended, regret, toleration, and friendship, among other topics. Massimo Piliucci has a PhD in evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Tennessee. He currently is the K.D. Arani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of New York. His research interests include the philosophy of biology, the relationship between science and philosophy, the nature of pseudoscience, and the practical philosophy of Stoicism. Professor Piliucci has been elected Fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science for Fundamental Studies of Genotype by Environmental Interactions and for Public Defense of Evolutionary Biology from Pseudoscientific Attack. In his area of public outreach, Professor Piliucci has published in national and international outlets such as the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. He is a fellow of the Committee of Skeptical Inquiry and a contributing editor to Skeptical Inquirer. He publishes two blogs, Plato's Footnote on General Philosophy and How to Be a Stoic, on his personal exploration of Stoicism as a practical philosophy. At last count, he has published 153 technical papers in science and philosophy. He is also the author and editor of 13 books, most recently the best-selling How to Be a Stoic, Using Ancient Philosophy to Live a Modern Life. Other titles include Answers for Aristotle, How Science and Philosophy Can Lead Us to a More Meaningful Life, Nonsense on Stilts, How to Tell Science from Bunk, and Science Unlimited, The Challenges of Scientism. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal to access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Let's move on to today's conversation. Thank you for joining me today, Massimo. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Good, and many listeners are probably familiar with you through a lot of your content that you've been producing over the years, and more specifically, you've been focusing on your blog, amongst others, How to Be a Stoic. Uh, yeah, as it turns out, I did some calculation the other day, and I, yeah, you're right, I do put a lot of <laughs> material out <laughs> yeah. in the course of a year. Yeah, on the on the weekends, I see, oh, here are these 245 pieces on this topic. Yeah, just go look at that, right? That's good. That's right. Yeah, I, I first heard about your mention of stoicism on a rationally speaking episode you had an episode dedicated to that and now you're more focused on the topic right yeah that, that's right the rationally speaking podcast was a lot of fun i was i did that for five years uh, with uh, my co-host julia galef now she actually still uh, does it on her own but uh yeah in, in the last few years I, I focused on different things sort of more in philosophy of science which is my my other blog uh footnotes to plato is it, focused on that topic and then stoicism yes mm-hmm. So the question many probably ask is why stoicism? Why the focus on that? Uh, the result of a midlife crisis, uh, to some extent, that took took place a few years ago. And uh, during that period, I was looking for uh, something different to do, actually, in terms of my career. My first career was uh, in biology as an evolutionary biologist. And then um, I decided actually to go back to school and study philosophy, since I I had an interest in philosophy going all the way back to high school in Italy. So I went back and got my PhD in philosophy. But, you know, even if you want to do philosophy professionally, you just cannot escape, uh, you know, thinking about the big questions. The, the very first course that I took was on ethics. The second was on Plato. And so that got me to think about stuff uh, in a different way. Uh, one of the things that I did, I immediately gravitated around the idea of virtual ethics. And the first stop there usually is Aristotle, which was fine. I, you know, I enjoyed reading Aristotle, but I really didn't see him as as a way to sort of 
practically apply things to my life. Aristotle just came across to me as a little bit of an elitist in, in a sense because thought that, yes, sure, virtue is important in life, but you also have to have a number of other things. You have to be a little bit wealthy, a little bit educated, even have some good books, otherwise your life is going to suck. So that, uh, that, that rubbed me the wrong way. Uh, the next stop, Epicurious. And Epicurus has a lot of good things to say. I like a lot of his, his emphasis on sort of minimalism and a simple life and friendship. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he also, because the, the main goal for the Epicureans was to reduce pain, physical and especially emotional, then he actually advised people to withdraw from uh, social and political involvement. And that, that definitely doesn't, uh, doesn't sound like a good idea to me. Uh, so the third stop happened to be the Stoics. And, and they immediately clicked. It was, it was obvious since I started rereading uh, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius, which I've read when I was a younger, and then also especially Epictetus, uh, that that really immediately it felt very very differently. You know, so when I was reading Aristotle and Epicur- or Epicurus, I, I, I was thinking, yeah, okay, this is interesting, yeah, that's that's a good point. But as soon as I started reading Epictetus, like, oh my gosh, where has this, <laughs> this guy been before? <laughs> Why did I not know about them? Right. Yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned a midlife crisis, and here you found a practical application for philosophy, something I focus on on this podcast, and how can we use philosophy to better our lives? You mentioned in your book that, well, the ancients thought of philosophy as being a guide to life, a framework from which to build on, something you can look for rather than this uh, more isolated thought problems in the ivory tower or something, the bad reputation that philosophy sometimes gets today. Yeah, but that's to be fair. That's not true just for philosophy. It's true for pretty much any academic discipline. Modern academy, especially after World War II, has gotten very, very sophisticated and specialized. And if you want to be a successful academic, you have to you know, focus on very tiny, narrow areas of expertise where you, you're more likely to make an original contribution. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like science itself, for instance, started out as, you know, wonder in nature, or for a long time, it was actually a way to prove, you know, the, the, the creation of, of the universe by, by God, because it's like you, you're doing science, you're understanding the book of nature, you know, that sort of stuff. Modern scientists, as I said, in my first career, was as a scientist, are very much narrowly focused on, on tiny slivers of that's, that's just the way it works these days. But I do think that philosophers in particular have a duty, I think, to also speak to the, to the general public and to go back to philosophy as a practice. Mm-hmm. Now, with Stoicism, I think there are a lot of misunderstandings surrounding this. They think of maybe Spock or this unemotional person that they're repressing everything, right? They, they might not understand what Stoicism as a philosophy stemming from popular thinkers like Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Zeno, one of the founders, right? Can you give a short definition or an explanation of Stoicism for people unfamiliar? Yeah, sure. The, the, the Spock problem is, is a very common one. And I say this with all due respect to Mr. Spock, because he's one of my <laughs> favorite you know, characters, uh, fictional characters. But you're right. So uh, Stoicism is a philosophy of life, is one of a number of Hellenistic philosophies uh, that uh, took shape basically between the death of Alexander the Great and the beginning of the Roman Empire. It's now different, I think, in, in general outlook from a number of other world philosophies, such as Buddhism, for instance. And it basically is a way to reorient, it's a framework to reorient your priorities in life and to approach life from a, a different and more useful perspective. Uh, the goal of Stoicism is to live a life of virtue, uh, that is to be good to other people and particularly to practice four fundamental, four cardinal virtues, which are practical wisdom, courage, justice. Uh, and temperance. And it's also, to some extent, a secondary goal or a positive byproduct of the, of the practice of Stoicism is uh, achieving or approaching at least a state that the Greeks called ataraxia, which is a serenity or tranquility of mind. Mm. Good. So we see a lot of practical benefits with this as we can use some of the passages, some of the inspiration to help us in day-to-day living, right? Yes, absolutely. In fact, one of the things that differentiates Stoicism from the other even from the other Hellenistic philosophies, is that um, it really comes with a number of practical exercises which you can find scattered throughout the known extant uh, Stoic sources. Uh, with a friend of mine, Greg uh, Lopez, who runs a Stoic uh, meetup group um, here in town in New York, mm-hmm. and, and with whom I actually run every year the Stoic camp on the Hudson, in the Hudson Valley, Greg and I just got a book of contracts to write a book of Stoic exercises, and we collected 52 of them. Oh, great. And we're going to present them in, in great details, but they're, they're all sourced. I mean, they're all actually derived from direct quotations from Marcus Aurelius, Seneca, or Epictetus. So, yeah, it's, it's very much practical. 
Good, good. I think it's leading us to really question the things that we value, as you mentioned, as people might just have these ideas that have popped in. Maybe it's been some societal influence or maybe some media they've consumed in thinking, oh, this is what the great life looks like. But Stoicism encourages us to really question everything and say, well, maybe that thing you consider valuable really isn't, such as what want of fame, attention, wealth for the purposes of wealth, right? These are some of the things that are leading us to question. Yeah, and they do it in a way that it's uh, that it's actually coherent. I mean, they don't just pull things out of thin hair. They have arguments for why certain things are important and other things aren't important. Of course, like with every other argument in philosophy, one can buy or not buy, and you know, can reject <laughs> the premises and so on and so forth. I mean, that's that just because somebody has an argument that does even a good argument doesn't mean that everybody's going to get on board. But what I'm saying is, you know, unlike a lot of other philosophies where things really do come across as like, okay, why should I do this? The Stoics do have answers. So they think they start out presenting their philosophy is to say that we should live according to nature. And living according to nature doesn't mean, as one might think, going naked into the forest and hugging trees (laughs) and like that. means uh, taking seriously human nature, the the nature of the world in general and human nature. And what they meant by this is that if you think about it, so what the two characteristics that are most fundamental that differentiate human beings from any other animal on the planet are the fact that we are highly social, we can survive on our own, in isolation, but we only flourish in society, so we're highly interconnected, and that we're capable of reason, you know, much more so to a much higher degree than any other species on, on Earth. Now, of course, the fact that we're capable of reason doesn't mean, as we all know, that we reason <laughs> well all the time, that, you know, on the contrary, but, but we're capable of doing that. And so for the Stoics, it followed, therefore, that if we want to be true to our nature, that's, that's what they meant by living according to nature, then we should be social using reason in order to improve social life. That's, that's the, the fundamental idea. As far as the virtues are concerned, you know, the other, the other fundamental idea is that uh, we should practice the virtues. And, you know, why the idea specifically is that the, the virtue is the highest good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can easily see somebody say, what do you mean? You know, money is the highest good or, or pleasure is the highest good or whatever, whatever you want, to, or fame, etc., etc. But again, there too, they had an argument. That argument actually goes back to Socrates. The Stoics were directly influenced by, by Socrates. And in fact, they referred to their philosophy as a Socratic. And Socrates, in a, a platonic dialogue called the Euthydemus, actually brings up this argument. And he basically says, look, the thing is, everything else that you can think of, including fame and in fact health or, or wealth, you know, money, uh, all of those things can be used for good and for, and for evil. Mm-hmm. The, the, and, and, and what is it going to tell you how to use them? The only thing that's going to tell you how to use them well is with the general idea of, vir- of virtue. Virtue is the only thing that is always good in and of itself by kind of by definition. You cannot practice evil virtue. And, uh, and you find that in the, in the writings of the Stoics. Peter says, there's a, right at the beginning of the discourses, there is a, a bit where he says, you know, yeah, you can have money, but how are you going to use that money? Well, the money's not going to tell you. you. You have to have some kind of guidance, and that guidance comes from four virtues. Right. It's an interesting thing because even people with extreme wealth, power, status, they can still be miserable and not use their money well, or they're just looking and looking. You talked about the concept of the hedonic treadmill on some of your writings and podcasts that you just want more and more. You're not satisfied. And society saying, oh, well, buy more, have more, your life is going to be better. It simply doesn't turn out to be the case. And stoicism is encouraging uh, minimalism in many cases. Yes. Now, it's not a philosophy of, you know, we need to be careful. It's not a philosophy of poverty or anything like that. The stoics went throughout the, the whole gamut. I mean, they went all the way from Epictetus, who was a former slave to Seneca, who was and the second richest man in Rome, of course, Marcus Aurelius. So there really is no no reason within Stoic philosophy for why you should or should not have money, possessions, and things like that. It is true that the Stoics do warn you, however, including Marcus Aurelius and Seneca, they warn you about the fact that if you are wealthy, if you have a lot of money, or if you have a lot of power, then you also run into a lot of uh, possibilities of corrupting yourself. You're going to run into into situations where it's going to be difficult to be virtuous precisely because you are it's easy to be corrupted by a lot of money, a lot of power. Those things by themselves are not incompatible with Stoicism. They are incompatible with other philosophies. Uh, one of the close kins of Stoicism was uh, cynicism, and the cynics were definitely minimalists by choice. I mean, they, they really thought that mm-hmm. externals such as possessions and money and so on and so forth and so forth, they're not just neutral like the Stoics thought, they really get in the way. But Stoicism is not cynicism. So it's not necessarily a minimalist philosophy, although it does encourage some level of minimalism. And it certainly encourages not getting attached to 
external. So you could be rich, for instance. But Seneca reminds himself several times in the in the, the letters that he writes to his friend Silius, like, look, I could lose everything tomorrow, which in fact at some point he basically did. Right. <laughs> when, when he went in disfavor with, with the Emperor Nero. My, my worth as a person does not depend on being rich or having possessions. It's Those are nice things to have, but they don't really make or break my life. What makes or break my life is how I behave toward other human beings. Right. And that's a common theme in stoicism that change and suffering, it's just this inevitable part of life that there are going to be some ups and downs. And how can we better adjust ourselves to cope with that adversity, and even in some cases, welcome a healthy amount of it? That's right. In fact, one of the things that the Stoics did as a regular exercise, try occasional periods of uh, self-deprivation. So Seneca says, try to be fasting, for instance, for a couple of days, or go without water for a little bit, or under go outside in the cold underdress you know things like that or sleep on the on on, on the floor once in a while now why would they do that you know they, they were not masochists they, they, they were not just looking for for pain for pain's sake there, there were a couple of reasons for it uh, one reason was to uh, essentially practice something that that they knew could happen you might, you know, it's nice to have a warm shower and a bed and so on and so forth and, and, and good clothes for the winter. But one of these days, it might, in fact, be the case that you're not going to be able to have those things. And that, then what are you going to do? So it was kind of a winter training, so to speak, as this, as the ancient soldiers referred to it. It's like you, you're getting ready for adversity by practicing adversity in a, sort of in a mild manner. The other reason to do it is kind of, again, it, it does deal with, with uh, what you mentioned, uh, the hedonic treadmill, although, of course, Stoics did not use that term. Right. Uh, that's a modern term in psychology. But uh, so the idea is that Seneca says explicitly, you know, after you've been fasting for a couple of days, uh, you come back home and even a simple soup and a stale bread just tastes wonderful. <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you know, you're very appreciative of what you have, which you, you begin to take for granted on the other hand if you don't pay attention. So, you know, we all do this. We all get used to certain commodities and certain luxuries even and we don't we forget that those are not due to us there's, there's no right to having an iphone or anything like that right so sometimes doing without it for a little bit reminds you uh, in a very sharp way that uh, yeah those i should be grateful for right and some of that joy we can experience is still within stoicism as some critics will say oh stoics are encouraging people not to have fun or they're kill joys right i i don't think that's an accurate interpretation no, not at all. In fact, the, one of the things I think that the Stoics were doing that is often misunderstood is, you know, people. a lot of people think about uh, Stoicism, as we were saying earlier, pressing emotion, going through life with a stiff up. That's not the case. What they were trying to do was to, in a sense, reorient our emotional spectrum. That is, moving away from uh, unhealthy, destructive emotions, such as anger, hatred, fear, things like that, but right. moving forward, at the same time, moving toward positive and healthy emotions, such as joy, love, and, you know, a sense of mm -hmm. doing the right thing, you know, that, that sort of stuff. So, no, this isn't a matter of suppressing emotion, and it's also not a matter of sort of killing the joy. I mean, you can see uh, there is a wonderful passage in Seneca where he says, you know, sometimes you just have to get a little bit drunk, and sometimes you have <laughs> get outside and enjoy the fresh air and you know dance the sound of music so that doesn't sound to me like somebody who didn't enjoy life but again you don't want to think th as those things as defining your life yes. right? those are nice things to have and uh, there's nothing wrong uh, about enjoying them but that's not what life is really about what life is really about according to the sports is again being helpful to other people, being a good person, then, then you can enjoy uh, whatever you have. Right. And maybe it's a mistake that people think, oh, I need all this money to have this happiness in life. I need this new gadget. I need this brand new car. But much of the joy we could experience could just be in helping others. We can find meaning and fulfillment in life in different ways. Yeah. As, as we say sometimes today, you know, the best things in life are free. And to some extent that, that is true. It's, there's also pretty good empirical evidence that actually people tend to overestimate grossly overestimate how much money and possessions they need in order to be happy. Uh, mm. There's quite a bit of evidence now uh, from research from, uh, from uh, social psychology uh, that, that uh, shows that the amount of income that people need in order to feel happy and satisfied uh, is actually fairly low, much lower than, than one might think. Uh, so that this, and in fact, that adding more doesn't really add units of happiness. At that point, you start having actually worries about how to manage that money, how to manage your house, how to manage you know these things, and so, so now you you kind of balance uh, 
I think that you feel better because you have more stuff. Now somebody can steal it, I can lose it, it can break, all sorts of other sources of anxiety. Right, and it has some diminishing utility as well. Once you have the basics met, you're pretty comfortable. What more is that, say, $50,000 going to do? If you can be content with that, like, seventy five a year, somewhere around there, right? Is it going to make that much of a difference? Yeah, really? that's right. Exactly. Uh, I mean, uh, again, the, the, you have to think in terms of, you know, so if you have a, a second car, a third car, and fourth car, or a second house, a second third <laughs> what, what are you? how many do you need? I mean, what are you going to do with uh, this at some point? And not only that, again, what is the trade-off? You know, what are you giving yes. up? You're, you're spending less time kids or you're spending less time with your partner or with your friends or things like that because now you're obsessed with making enough money to keep up with all this stuff right some people toiling so much at jobs they really don't like to purchase things that really aren't giving them more happiness it seems like a miserable existence and sadly one which many people might be living yes that's right i mean those are the lucky ones of course in at least in american society and then there's lots of people who uh, have to do multiple jobs just because they actually don't have enough to get to the end of the month uh, and that's a different kind of category. But we're th- if we're talking about sort of middle class or upper middle class and above from there, mm-hmm. uh, yes, you have a lot of people, a lot of do jobs that they don't care about just because they think that they have to make a certain amount of money. In fact, they have to be better than their neighbors there. This one too has a, this point too is, has a lot of empirical back, uh, backing from modern studies in social science, this idea that most people actually don't think that an absolute amount of money or possessions is important. And what's important is to do better than the people around you mm. so so you have to have higher salary than everybody you know or better house than everybody you know and so it depends it's it's a relative measurement of things but the obvious question is well why what, what's wrong with having the average house in, in your neighborhood instead of the right. best? What, what what exactly what are you gaining uh, by all that extra effort the, the envy of people so so what who cares yeah, what's that really going to mean for you? Or stoicism? I, I like this uh, phrase from Seneca, be your own spectator, seek your own applause, right? And being less reliant on social validation or other people liking us, right? Just to be more yeah. content with our own lives. And in an age too, where self-esteem, people um, say, oh, I need a certain clothing, I need a certain makeup. And it, it really seems to be a terrible game to be in where everyone is trying to just put on this facade for everyone and focusing on seemingly the wrong things. Yeah, exactly. And Marcus Aurelius is even more uh, blunt about this kind of stuff, right? He says, look, all of these people that you seem to be, you care about their opinions, in, apparently, however, you also don't really care too much for them. Uh, you, you don't want to be associated with, the, with those people. And at any rate, they're all going to be dead very soon and, and forgotten. So it's like, why, why are you doing all this, this stuff to impress people that you don't particularly want to associate with? So yeah, those, those are good, good points. Yeah, why care so much about validation from people you don't care about? And no matter what we do, there will still be enemies. There will still be critics and trolls. I mean, you even get your yep. share on your works. And, yes, oh, well, exactly. Uh, and in fact, the, the thing is made much worse, of course, by social media, right? Yes. So now now we, we care about how many likes we get from total strangers. It's like, why, why should I care about it? Why is that going to make my life any better? Why, why is that going to be meaningful? And yet, natural tendency human beings have for, for validation natural yearning for validation, it's, it's uh, made even more significantly worse and you know, order of magnitude larger um, by the fact that now we're looking for hundreds of so-called friends or thousands of so-called friends mm-hmm. uh, you know, on Facebook. But you cannot, by definition, you cannot have hundreds or thousands of friends. Because, you know, you're not going to be able to spend any time with any of them. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting thing as I hear a lot about loneliness today and people just feeling um, bereft of help, even desolation, even with all these connections, the so-called connections we have to other people that it's still an enduring thing. And maybe social media in some cases is making us uh, less content and hurting our self-worth even more because we're letting it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, we live in an age where we're connected with people on the other side of the world, uh, and yet we, we're then we go to the bar by ourselves in the evening because we don't have friends nearby. We don't have actual human beings uh, that interact with us. So that's, uh, I think that's pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, and Stoicism is saying, well, these things are in your power. These are choices we can make. They talk a lot about judgments, impressions, right? That, well, we see an event and then we have an opinion of that event. It's not that this phrase that people say, oh, he made me angry. Oh, he made me do that. These seem to be quite distant to Stoicism. Yes, in fact, uh, especially Epictetus uh, insists that really you should we should make this very sharp distinction. Modern Stoics refer to as the dichotomy of control between things that are under our control and things that are not under our control. 
and that we should be focused on the things that are under our control because those we, we can always accomplish, and so we're going to be happy about accomplishing those things. The things that are not under our control, on the other hand, we may fail, and therefore we might become unhappy about it. And then Epictetus goes on and lists things that are that fall into each uh, either category, and the, pretty much the only things that are truly completely under our control are, in fact, our judgments, our opinions, our you know, the decisions we make uh, mm-hmm. about doing something or not doing something. Everything else is outside of our control, not in the sense that we don't. We cannot influence it, you know. Like for instance, my body is partially. I can I can certainly influence uh, the status of my body, right? I can decide to go to the gym and exercise, and you know, to keep in shape, and I can decide you know, healthy foods, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's true. But then a virus strikes me, and that's completely out of outside of my control, and there's nothing I can do. I mean, it doesn't matter how much I went to the gym or. or how healthy I eat, the virus is still going to get me. So in that sense, Epictetus said, you know, even the body is not under your control. And certainly your reputation is not under your control. Your wealth is not under your control because, again, you can work on it. You can make them better up to a point, but then something else can happen that it's completely outside of your jurisdiction, so to speak. Right. Uh, and it can ruin everything. On the other hand, the thing that, uh, that your judgments really are, you cannot be compelled to make judgments that you don't want to make. So you, you mentioned the case of you know, insults. That's a classic example. If I just this morning, I was uh, podcasting. Uh, so I have a, a very short podcast every morning, uh, like a two minutes, two or three minutes. Yeah, there's like meditations where I, I present. Basically, I started doing that because I do that as one of my own exercises. I, you know, one of the first things I do in the morning, I open, you know, Epictetus or Seneca or Marcus Aurelius, and I read passage and I sort of reflect for a minute about what that means and how it applies to my life. So I figure, oh, that could be actually useful to other people. So now, now I turned it into a podcast. J- just this morning, the one that came up was um, a bit in which Epictetus uh, says, look, if somebody insults you, the onus is on you not to react. He says, you know, what you should do is you try to try, try to react like a, a rock. He says, you know, go outside, pick up a rock and, and try to insult it. What, what, <laughs> How, how do you feel about that? Well, you feel like an idiot, right? The rock is not, obviously, it's not giving you the satisfaction. It's not responding. So the same goes with, with insults that are earlier us. I mean, the person, first of all, a lot of the times we may be perceiving something as an insult, which was not meant to be, right? Mm-hmm. Intentions, are very, intentions are important. Yeah, we get offended so easily and quickly. Yeah. We can get offended because we misinterpret what the other person was saying. Maybe maybe the other person said something clumsy, and you know maybe it said something that did not mean, or you know whatever it is. But mm-hmm. the first the first line of analysis should be: Look, did this person really mean it? Because it, it's possible that, in fact, even likely that he didn't. Right. But then, of course, there are cases where it's pretty obvious that people do want to insult you. And in those cases, the best answer really is the one that Epictetus provides. I mean, it really disarms people. If you just ignore them, you just walk away. It's like, yeah. <laughs> what the hell? You know, there, there's no satisfaction there because the, what the person that wants to insult you wants from you is a reaction. Mm-hmm, you're giving it, it into yeah, it wants to pro- uh, cause anger in you. That's that's the whole point, right? Stoicism takes a radical approach of saying, well, does that even matter? What harm does that do to me? In some cases, you could even use it to your advantage and they can suffer and you could just not be a part of their drama and get involved and just say, okay, that you know, this person really doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm just going to go about doing what I'm doing. So it's very difficult to get this concept across these days because people say, well, well that's, it's an injustice that I received, you know, <laughs> Like, you know, this guy insulted me and that's not just, well, why do you care? Uh, right. He made, a, in a sense, in, from a stoic perspective, the person who is insulting him is just made a mistake, a judgment mistake, right? So, mm-hmm. so if somebody tells me something that I may find insulting, let's say a derogatory comment about my work, right? Okay, there's only two possibilities. Either the person is actually, in fact, right. I did a bad job and, you know, crap of a job on that particular <laughs> thing. So, so he's right at, at criticizing me. Or he's, he's wrong and he's just trying to get a reaction out of him, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, in the first case, if he's right, then I shouldn't get upset or angry. I should actually thank him. Right? The rational thing to do, the reasonable thing to do is to say, oh, thank you. I didn't want to make a mistake. I don't want to make a fool of myself. I don't want to produce crappy job mm-hmm. work. So, great. Thank you. I'll, I'll make a note of it and I'll do it better the next time. That's the first possibility. The second possibility, if in fact he's essentially making an error of judgment, if he thinks, you know, he's telling you something that is in fact not wrong, not right, because you did not do a bad job. Then he is the fool. Um, Epictetus explains this by saying, look, 
if somebody did a piece of uh, logical thinking, you know, a, a deductive, uh, you know, a syllogism, and yes. he get it, he gets it wrong. Who is it worse for? It? Is it is it the fault of the syllogism? No, the syllogist doesn't care. It's the guy that is making an, a fool out of himself, an ass out of himself, because he doesn't know how to do a, a syllogism. So either way you put it, it's a win-win situation. If you if you either accept the criticism because then you're going to learn from the situation, or you're just going to ignore it because in fact it's not a criticism; it's just a, a mistake made by somebody else. Right. So to focus on the right things, to not be brought down by others, and to, as you said, be like that rock <laughs> in a way. Uh, yeah. Marcus Aurelius even says, uh, "Be be like the boulder or the the promontory upon which the waves crash upon, undaunted." And that that's really going to help us on day to day, rather than just getting so upset about everything and just being able to coast through the day. So I get insulted all the time. You know, basically on a, on a daily basis. It's not right. And I used to, that used to upset me. It's like. Come on, you know, my, my thinking often was like, wait a minute, I'm putting out a lot of effort in this thing. I'm, I'm, I'm writing for a, to be helpful to people. And why do I get this crap? Now I just don't care. I, I trained myself to just not giving a damn. It's like, oh, is that what you think? All right, fine. Go ahead. Um, right. I don't I don't care. It doesn't affect me anymore. And uh, that only took really a few months of practice. Uh, since I started uh, doing stoicism, is like almost magically just went away. You probably know Bill Irvine, who is also sort of a practicing stoic. And, yes. Uh, really nice book on uh, on stoicism. Guides to um, the good life, right? Exactly. Bill actually says that he's now become sort of a connoisseur of insults. He actually looks forward to being insulted. <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. every time that's a sort of a, it's an exercise for him, right? It's, it's like being in the in the boxing arena where, and, and, and now you have, there, here we go, another punch comes, let's see how I can take it. It becomes right. a game. Good. You're listening to the Stoic Solutions Podcast. I'm here with guest Massimo Piliucci joining me for a conversation today. We have some questions from Patreon supporters. One <laughs> supporter asks how within the stoic practices can people accept things that happen in life while protecting themselves from being taken advantage of this would include things such as verbal abuse so there is a, a common misconception that stoicism is a quietist philosophy that is you know because it's it, because a lot of it is about acceptance it's like oh you mean i have to take all this crap and i can't do anything you know i, can, I cannot actually engage and try to change things and no there's nothing in stoicism that says you shouldn't engage and do or do trying to improve the situation. We have plenty of examples from Stoic history of people engaging, right? So one of the Stoic role models was Cato the Younger, who started or literally started a revolution against Julius Caesar because he thought that things were not going right. We have Marcus Aurelius, who fought two wars and a plague and a revolt. And so it's you now he didn't just sit there and say, well, you know, things happen, I have to take it. So it's, it's really a misconception to think that Stoicism is a quietist philosophy. Uh, it's not a, the idea is not that you should uh, just take it um, and, and not try to change. The idea is, however, that you should be very discerning about what kinds of things you're going to put your effort. Again, insult, being insulted, you know, redressing an insult, that's just not worth your time. That's, that's just as we just um, discussed, is that, that's simply somebody else's mistake and what do you care? That's, that's not going to make any difference. Now, if we're talking about an, in, an actual injustice, a crime, or, or, or a financial injustice, or a political injustice, or something like that, mm -hmm. yeah, you should definitely do something about it, whatever it is possible. To, Stoicism has an embedded impetus to do this, uh, something good, to try to change things, because one of the four cardinal virtues is the virtue of justice. You should always try to improve things for yourself and for the rest of the world. Uh, so it's simply not the case that you just sit down and, and take However, Stoicism always reminds you that whatever you do, it's always possible that it's, you're not going to succeed, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. And the idea is that if you lose, then you accept that with equanimity. So the acceptance there is not a pass passive acceptance. It's just the acceptance of the idea that, you know, sometimes things just are not going to go your way. The metaphor, the beautiful metaphor there, I think, is uh, presented by Cicero. In book three of uh, the Finibus Malorum and Bonorum, Bonorum and Banorum, which is which means the ends of good and evil, <laughs> and uh, which is a wonderful title, I, I think. But in book three, he has uh, he presents this um, stoic metaphor of the archer, and he says, you know, if you are an archer, what is under your control is the practice. You can practice to hit your target. In order to hit your target, you can focus at the moment that you are letting the arrow go. You you can choose the arrow, you can take care of the bow, all, all those things are under your control. But once the arrow is gone, once you let it go toward the target, whether you hit the target or not, now it's entirely outside of your control. Target could move, 
Uh, there could be a, a gust of wind, you know, all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Hitting the target should be chosen but not desired. And this is a really interesting, you know, sort of careful phrasing by him. That means you should choose absolutely. And what you're trying to do is you, to hit the target. It's not you don't care. You do want to hit the target. But you don't attach your, your self-worth to hitting that target. You don't say, oh, if I don't hit that target, that's it. My life is over. You know, I'm done. I'm a, I'm a loser. I'm a, there's no point and so on and so on. You just say, oh, well, sometimes you hit it. Sometimes you don't. Right. Now, this has all sorts of really important practical application. Right? So suppose that you're up for a job interview, for instance. You shouldn't want to get the, the promotion, let's say. Or to get uh, what you should want is to do your best in order to deserve that job or that promotion, because that's under your control. Doing your best is under your control. Actually, right. getting the job or the promotion is not, because it depends on a bunch of other things. Maybe your boss got up on the wrong side of the bed this morning, you know, had a fight with his wife or something, and he's in a bad mood and he's not going to hire anybody. You know, that's you don't control that, and you know that sometimes job interviews go well and sometimes they don't go well. All you want is to do a good job interview. You don't want the actual, you know, desire. You do want it, but you don't desire the job. Or take another example in terms of, sort of personal relationships, right? So you're, you're, you're a partner. And sometimes you go, oh, I, I want my partner to love me. No, wrong. What you would want is for you to be the most lovable person with your partner. Whether your partner loves you back or how much loves you back, that's a, that's the harm or her or, or him, not, not not you. Sometimes, you know, relationships work well and sometimes they don't, as we all know. You shouldn't, again, attach your self-worth as an individual on, on the outcome of a relationship because the outcome is not under your control. If the relationship doesn't go well, if it ends, the question that you should ask yourself is, did you do everything you could have done? Were you a good person? Were you virtuous within that relationship? If the answer is yes, then just move on. Yeah, and it's a really difficult thing as people face tremendous amounts of grief, despair following a lot of these dissolutions of relationships, and stoicism can help them through that process, I think. Yes, and again, uh, the Stoics, especially Seneca, are very careful at, at saying, look, we're not... the." The idea here is not that you shouldn't care emotionally because, you know, if you, let's say somebody dies, that's even worse than the end of the relationship. Uh, Seneca wrote famously uh, three letters of consolation, two of, of which were addressed to people who actually lost. Uh, in mm-hmm. one case, brother, you know, Polybius, and a uh, letter to Marcia. Marcia had, had lost a couple of years earlier uh, one of her sons. Now, Seneca is very clear. He says, look, I, it's not a, I'm not telling you not to grieve. That would be inhuman. Right. I'm not telling you not to shed tears about this thing. That would be uh, horrible. That would be an inhuman thing to do. It's right there. It's black and white. You know, he, he says it. So anybody who thinks that uh, stoicism is about suppressing emotions is just obviously doesn't know what they're talking about because it's right there in black and white. But what he does say is like, okay, but hold on. Time has passed and, you know, your brother is dead or your son is dead. Now, what are you going to do about it? Uh, what you should do is to, on the one hand, remember those people for the best things that they've done, for all the times that, that you know, the good times that, that you spent with them, sort of appreciate their memory, essentially. And on the other hand, refocus your energy and do other things. He says to Polybius, you have other brothers. Mm-hmm. He says to uh, to uh, Marsha, you have other sons. And they they expect you to do to be their brother or their mother. You know, you, you have other duties to other people. And that's what you should do. You should channel those energies after a while and accept the fact that sometimes people die. In fact, people always die eventually. Right. Right? Yeah. And you accept that as a natural fact. Uh, it's not a pleasant fact, but it is a natural fact. It does happen. And after a reasonable amount of grief, you just say, okay, you know what? Let me move on. Let's see what else I can do in my life. How else can I be useful? Yes, and find some new purpose, find some meaning, take a more productive approach in that, yes, we might get attached to one person, one individual, one thing, so we could recognize, okay, this is a tragedy. It's too bad it hasn't worked out, but try to orient ourselves further in life to be productive and, yes, not attach our self-worth to outcomes. People will blame themselves. They'll say, oh, only if I did more, even though they made an extreme effort. Right, exactly. So long as you, again, so long as you've done what those will be doing, so long as you've acted right in the right way, so long as you practice the virtues, then there's nothing else that you could possibly have done. There's no sense. Now, regret, for instance, is not a stoic value, sure. mm-hmm. right? Because the, the past is not under your control. Again, it's gone. There's nothing you can do about it. It doesn't mean you don't want to learn from it. And you know, the reasonable thing to do is to learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. 
Uh, but to regret them, to sort of regret is kind of an indulging in, in negative thoughts about, oh, I could have done this, I should have done that. Well, maybe you could have and should have, but you didn't. And uh, at this point, it's done. So, so focus on what, you, what it is that you can do right here, right now, maybe to redress some of those problems. If you did create problems in the past with somebody else, that perhaps you can redress them. And if you cannot redress them, just learn from your mistakes and move forward so you're not going to make them again. So you're not going to do the same thing to somebody else. Right. And to be more content with our own time as well as some people will stay in relationships that are quite toxic, especially with abusive partners, they really just continue to be in a sad state of things and too much focus on other too much attachment to another can be very dangerous as well. It's always up to your judgment. So you just mentioned, you know, an abusive relationship. Okay, so if I were in an abusive relationship, then I would have to use my judgment, my practical wisdom, which is one of the four fundamental you know, cardinal virtues. That's the virtue that tells you how to navigate complex situations, especially ethically complex situations. So up to a certain point, if, you know, if I love the, that, that person, if I think that the person can, be, can benefit from help and that sort of stuff, then, then I should stay. Then I have a duty, in fact, to stay. But, but that duty is not unbound. Uh, if, if there really is no way out and if it, the only thing that the relationship is doing is hurting both people, then, then you need to get out. Right. When exactly is that place? You're the best judge of that. Uh, you, know, you are inside the situation. You should be able to figure out, okay, up to here, but no more. And sometimes you're going to make mistakes. We're not sages. The ideal stoic is, is referred to often as the sage, and the sage never makes mistakes because he has perfect human judgment. Right. But all of us don't, you know, most of us don't have perfect human judgment. So you do the best uh, that you can. And the idea is exactly that one, to do the best that you, that you can manage, not to be perfect. Uh, right. Seneca in one, one place or another says, it's like, uh, you know, I'm, not per- I'm far from perfect. I'm just trying to be better than yesterday. There's that thought in Marcus Aurelius about encountering a man in the gymnasium. Marcus Aurelius, maybe Epictetus, about, well, you might run across someone who bumps into you on accident and don't harbor ill will against them. But if you find someone who continues to be malicious, then maybe it's best to keep your distance and to not continue to engage with that. Yes, exactly. And it, again, it's up to your judgment to say, well, was this thing an accident or was this done on purpose? You're obviously, you're going to react very differently. Trying to navigate life in the most virtues, the most you know, ethical way possible. But it's not to go for perfection. And this is something that Stoicism has in common with a lot of other traditions, you know, particularly Buddhism, for instance. In fact, I tend to think of Stoicism as the Western equivalent of Buddhism in several respects. Their metaphysics is very different. Their metaphysical assumptions behind Stoicism and Buddhism is very different. But the practice, the ethical practice, thinking rightly, speaking rightly, mm-hmm. and so on and so forth, all those things are very similar. Right. And to not be so <laughs> negative or focus on the tragedy of life. I, I like a passage in Seneca that talks about acknowledging tragedy, talking about the lesson to be learned from the burning of lions, right? Where a man, he has seen his his home, his great place that he lived in that was just engulfed by flames. And maybe this can be a call for us to be reborn like the mythical phoenix and to right. try to aspire to a better future that maybe some good can come out of this tragedy. Yeah, one of the things that I appreciate about the Stoics uh, is, in fact, they're, in a sense, they're, they're poetry. I mean, you, you, if you read um, Marcus, and Epictetus, and Seneca, they, they come up with beautiful uh, turns of phrases and beautiful analogies that really strike you. you know, like I mentioned one of the archer, but there's a bunch of them. They're all over. They're all over. The, and some of them are funny. Uh, like for instance, uh, Epictetus in particular tends to be pretty funny. Uh, it's kind of a sort of dry sense of humor, if you will, but but certainly funny. So there's a bit. I think it's in the Caridian where he says, um, "Look." Every time you go out and do something, you should have two goals in, in mind. One, the, the immediate goal is to do whatever it is that you set out to do. And the second goal is to remain in harmony with the universe. And he says, you know, so suppose that you go to the thermal baths and you say, you wanna, I want to be having a, a nice timing at the, at the baths and harmony with the universe. And he says, look, then you're going to go there and somebody's going to splash you and it's going to be annoying and somebody's going to you know, yell and all that sort of stuff. And what are you going to do? So if you if you get upset for those things, you know, it's like how are you going to keep your harmony with the universe if you're going to go to pieces just because somebody splashed you in the in the you know in the swimming pool? It's like that's not that's not a big deal, right? But it's, it conveys these these images really nice, you know, very sort of day to day kind of Roman uh, 
uh, experience image. You know, the, the, the Romans went to the bath, the, the thermal baths every day. And so it's like, yeah, you, you feel like you were with him in the thermal baths. And, <laughs> and you're trying to keep your harmony with the universe while people are splashing around making a mess. So, you know, we don't go to the thermal baths, but we do very similar things. Like that exercise, for instance, that particular uh, passage has been very helpful to me. With one of the things that really used to annoy the hell out of me, which is when I go to the movie theater and somebody whips up whips out their, their, their <laughs> cell phone in the middle of the movie because they absolutely have to check their text messages uh. you know, or, or, or post something on Facebook or something like that. And, you know, it's, it's inconsiderate. It's, it's, a, it's annoying. It does interfere with your uh, enjoyment. And, of course, if the person is next to you, you could politely try to say something to him. Again, this is not – the idea is not to just – stand back and take it. The person is near me, I will politely ask. But at some point, you know, you can't just go around in the entire movie theater and where everybody is, you know, shut up. <laughs> it's just not. You have to make two choices. Either you, don't, if that annoys you enough, then just don't go to movie theaters. Get a really right. nice, large television at home and watch the movie at home. Right, just um, don't expose yourself to it. If it's exactly, you don't expose it. Or if you say, look, I still want to go to movies, then you know that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore your goal should be twofold one is to enjoy the movie and the other one is to keep your harmony with the universe and you're not going to keep your harmony in the universe if you're going to get upset every time that somebody pulls out a cell phone right epictetus in his works has an analogy about imitating those who play dice he says that the the dice are have this random factor to it but what yeah. we can do is use what comes up with our best judgment with our skill with what we can bring to the table so things happen outside of our control and we can roll with that and make the best of yes that is that's actually a very important uh, stoic teaching uh, which I, I wish that more people sort of paid attention to it's perfectly commonsensical I mean, you know sometimes i explain these kind of things to people who are not into stories and they say well but that's uh, that's what my mother told and i say yeah that's right and your mother was right uh, you know your mother was building on, on wisdom that it's two thousand years old yes absolutely i mean Stoic philosophy isn't difficult. The concepts are not difficult. It's the practices difficult. Uh, you know, it's, it doesn't take that much to understand the idea of the dichotomy of control, or to understand what the four virtues are about. You know, any any of those things. They're not required. You know, they're not rocket science. Uh, and they also the advantage of the Stoic writers is that they write in very very plainly. I was about to say very plain English, but no, <laughs> very plain Latin or or Greek. It's pretty clear. I mean, you know, if you pick up certain books from other traditions, you may have trouble actually understanding what, what they're saying uh, unless you're actually pre-steeped in that tradition already. Sometimes even, you know, I was thinking of Buddhism, but in fact, even our own Western traditions, like I, I grew up Catholic, sometimes I would open the Gospels when I was little and I'd say, what the hell is he talking about? And, you know, if you don't know the references, if you don't know the, sort of the analogies and sort of familiar with the language, you don't, you're not necessarily going to get the, the point. But if you read Epictetus, it's pretty damn clear. Um, <laughs> if you read uh, Seneca or Marcus Aurelius, it's, it's pretty clear what they're what they're talking about. It's not that difficult to understand, but the practice is in fact, uh, something that needs to be done on a regular basis. Right, and Stoicism isn't only the reaction to events. We can be proactive, especially as you mentioned, dealing with others. So we can be very careful about the friends that we select, have a good foundation with our friends. And there's lots of talk of this, especially in Seneca. It's really interesting that I had given several presentations about Stoicism, hosted discussion groups, and of all the presentations, the one about friendship, I got the most backlash from really? oh well are you too elitist you're saying that ah, yes. oh you have too high standards for people as there's the talk of um the stoics surrounding themselves only with the best and someone took a uh, great offense to that it seemed and actually later he apologized and said you know i actually haven't revisited i haven't actually really considered the quality of the friends around me and maybe that's something i should really do that maybe i've made yeah. some bad choices Yes, exactly. Uh, and that, by the way, is another thing that your mother probably did tell you when you were a kid. You know, be careful who you associate with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the, and there are three sort of categories, broadly speaking, of, sort of friends, right? So there are the friends that the Stoics would say you should hang, hang around with. Those are people who are good, ideally even better than you, but at least good. People that, that, that are doing good things, that are spending their time in you know, effective ways, that um, people that you can learn from, basically, and develop a good relationship. Then there are, there's the opposite extreme. So there are people that are positively bad, that if you follow them, you sort of have, if you associate with them, they're actually going to get you in, in, in trouble or in, or, or in the wrong direction. Why would you want to associate with them? It's like, well, why would you want to do that sort of stuff? And then there is the situation that is more common. 
which is probably what that person that talked to you was, was referring to, which is, you know, a lot of our friends or acquaintances are, you know, neither one nor the other. They're not particularly good. They're not particularly bad. They're just people. Now, there's nothing wrong with hanging around with people, obviously. But if we're talking about friends as opposed to acquaintances, I think that's that, that most people use the word friends, especially uh, in English, in the English world, world a little too casually. Yes. You know, we, we, talk, we certainly talk about friends on Facebook, for instance, and those are yeah. definitely not friends. But, but even <laughs> in terms of the people that you, that you know, I mean, we think of people in general as friends if we see them even, you know, once a month or something like that. That's not a friend. That's an acquaintance. That's somebody you kind of casually know. Friend is in, in, certainly in the sense in which the Stoics and actually, frankly, even the Epicureans and, and the Aristotelians uh, thought of a friend is somebody who you actually have an intimate relationship with. Is, is the kind of person that if you're sick, you can call up in the middle of the night and he's going to come over. You know, it's the kind of person that if you if you have a problem in your relationship, he's going to listen to you for hours and hours talking about it. You know, that sort of, that sort of person is a friend. And if we're talking about those people, well, it's quite obvious to me that you want good people in that group because, you know, otherwise you're going to get bad advice. Otherwise, you're going to get, you know, somebody who's going to say, no, sorry, I'm not going to come over to you because I'm, I'm asleep and you know, I'm really not going to in the cold. Deal with yourself with that problems. So yes, of course you want to be careful about who you associate with. And your person who talked to you actually is kind of typical of, you know, I noticed the same thing. The people do take offense when, when you bring up the idea of selecting your friends. But then they, uh, if they think about it carefully, they, they realize that they fall into certain patterns without thinking. Like, you know, you just meet people and you just hang around with people and you don't right. think, about, why am I doing this? Why am I associated with this? Is this really good for me? Is it, is it doing anything or, or am I good for them? You know, because that's, it goes both ways. Similarly, since we're talking about this, uh, you know, another bit in Epictetus that I noticed that this is off people a lot is um, the bit in the Encaridion where, where he tells you uh, what kind of conversations you should have. So he says, um, I, I can almost quote this verbatim. He says, don't talk about things like gladiators and horse races. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? <laughs> and I, I love that bit. It's like, okay, well, the chance of talking about gladiators nowadays in the 21st century is not very high. But it's very clear what he means, right? So he means try to bring the conversation to a higher level. And again, that sounds elitist. You know, when you say that, it's, it's, oh, right, sorry, it's not good, good enough for you to talk about sports and weather and, and gossip. He especially says, don't talk about other people. Pay attention. You know, the next time you get, you're in a, in a casual conversation with, with a group of people, try to pay attention to how many times they don't talk about sports, the weather, or oh, yeah. other people. And it's, there's almost nothing left. Uh, you know, a lot of conversation, if you take that out, there's almost nothing left. And that's exactly Epictetus' point. It's like, really, why would you want to do that as opposed to talk about interesting things, important things? You know, there, there's social issues, there's political issues, there's improvement in your own life, there's your own problems that people have to solve. Why don't you talk about that? Those, those are much more edifying conversations. And uh, I tell you, every time that I've tried consciously to sort of to, to bring the, nudge the conversation in better directions, everybody's been better for it and everybody's been happier about it. Good. Um, so you use your time well. That's a common exactly. thing within the Stoics. Exactly. Now, of course, you don't want to do it in an obnoxious way. You know, you don't want to say, interrupt <laughs> the conversation, say, okay, guys, this is a waste of time. Let's talk about general theory of relativity because that's a better reason. You know, that's, you don't want to do it that way. Uh, you, you need to be careful and tactful about how to do things. Right. And there surely is an opportunity cost, right? I mean, we, we only have so much time in the day if we're choosing to do one thing instead of another. Like, how, how can we make our days better? What can we occupy ourselves with that's really worth it? And we maybe could find ourselves mindlessly scrolling through Instagram for an hour and a half or, yeah, at least, exactly. you know, it's like, is that the way we want to be? And people say, oh, I have no time. But if yeah. we are mindful and structure our day and even loosely have some goals, reasonable things to do that can really free us up in many ways yes and you know i think that um it's interesting you mentioned this i think that that attitude that most of us really do have that like oh yeah i can waste an hour and a half that attitude comes from not taking seriously another of the stoic precepts which is the idea that life is actually short we, we all behave as if life were infinite uh, as if we were immortal and or at the very least as if we you know are pretty guaranteed that there's going to be decades before before we get into that point. But Seneca says, you know, there's no such thing as a premature death. Uh, premature compared to what? You know, the universe decides what the universe decides. You know, the cause and effect of the universe just work out in a certain way and people die. And yes, um, you know, I'm 54. My statistical expectation is that I should live another couple of decades, give or take. Mm -hmm. But, you know, again, a virus could, could 
you know, carry me off tomorrow or a car accident or an airplane accident or whatever it is. I really don't know how much time I have left. And the Stoics say, especially Seneca and, um, and Marcus Aurelius, say, look, how about you start thinking about it every day as being your last day? If you actually knew that this was your last day, what would you do? Would you really spend an hour and a half on Facebook? I, I really right. doubt it. Right? That, that wouldn't be my first priority on the, on the last day of my life. <laughs> and then there is the positive aspect to it, which is what Seneca says, and then if you have another day, you know, you, you get up tomorrow morning and you're still alive, you say, oh, good, I get another one to go. A bonus. <laughs> exactly. I got a bonus day. <laughs> yeah, see, there's this analogy between death and an enemy marching upon us and say what if we're if we're in a camp and the enemy is coming upon us and the enemy is going to kill us what are we going to do we're going to make haste let us ply the spur as i think it was seneca said right so we have this limited time so we can make the most of it while we still can before we're besieged by the enemy besieged by death that it's something always with us you know think about it if you're on your deathbed you look back back to your life what is it that you're going to be proud of that you spent hours and hours on social media or that you had a good time with your friends or that you had a, you know you took care of your children or you took care of your partner and so on so i i, I think that we all know the answer to that question nobody's right. going to be on their deathbed and say oh i wish i spent a couple more hours on facebook right and then there are those missed opportunities as well or things that people will say oh i wish i hadn't done this i put so much time into this one effort and well it didn't seem to have that return that i thought would come with it. Yes, that's right. That's one of the reasons why Seneca says not only that you should be paying attention to what can and cannot do, but also to the likelihood that you have of succeeding. That's right. He says you know you should put effort into things that you want to do that, that they're important to you, but also that you're actually likely to accomplish. And that's another thing that is often misunderstood. I mean, you know, some people say, oh, so if people didn't try to do the impossible, then where would the human race be? But that's not what the Stoics are talking about. First of all, nobody has ever done the impossible, by definition. <laughs> because if, it, if they did it, then it was not impossible, right. number one. But the other thing is, we're talking about a very, again, very commonsensical thing. It's like, look, I have a certain amount of energy, time, and resources during a day, and during a week, and during a, a year. And I have to decide. We all have to rationally, you know, reasonably decide. It's like, what am I going to do? So one of my priorities, uh, of course, is, as you know, is writing books. Well, yeah, but I cannot take on like 10 book uh, contracts at the same time. I'm just not going to be able to do it. <laughs> so I have to be careful and make my choices. Now, if I make my choices, let's say that I have two possible book projects for this year and I can only do one. Well, then I have to decide which one is more important. I have to decide which one is going to be more useful or whatever it is. We all make these kind of decisions all the time. So there's nothing really particularly surprising about the Stoics telling you, hey, you have a limited amount of time, so use it well. Right. Very good. All right. We're coming up on the end of the conversation here, and I'll link it in the show notes. Can you tell some listeners how to reach you to find out more about your content? Sure. I'm on Twitter, mpilucci, M-P-I-G-L-I-U-C-C-I. And then I have my two blogs. Uh, one is uh, Plato footnotes, footnote.org. Uh, and the other one is howtobeastoic.org. Uh, those right. are the major outlets, yeah. And How to Be a Stoic, that's also the title of your book, which now has a paperback version. That's right. The paperback uh, just came out uh, a couple of days ago. So, yeah, I'm very, very happy about it. And people find it useful. And frankly, that's the main reason I wrote it. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's nice to be able to put out something that is useful. Right. And we're recording this on May 9th. You have the book also in several languages, right? Uh, yes. To my surprise, the book has been doing well. So um, there is an American in, the, in an English edition, but there's also a Spanish, Italian, Dutch, German, Russian, Japanese, and Chinese <laughs> several several languages that's good yeah, that's reaching, amazing reaching more people and people really have a hunger for this kind of content which is great yes indeed and you mentioned earlier in the podcast about a stoic meetup in new york can you tell us more about that yeah there's actually two of them uh one is called the uh, new city stoics and it's run by my friend uh, greg uh, lopez i actually go there on a regular basis but he runs the meetup uh the other one is called the stoic school of life and i run that one at the society for ethical culture uh, which is near lincoln center if you're in new york 
you can find both of those on Meetup. Just look at uh, look up Meetup and then uh, uh, New York Stoicism. And, you- and there'll be a TED talk that you'll be presenting as well coming up, right? Yeah, it's a TEDx talk um, in Athens, of all places, on Stoicism. And uh, I'm going to do that on June 1st. And hopefully they're going to publish uh, the talk uh, very, very uh, shortly after that. Uh, they asked me what I wanted to do when I was there. And, I, you know, I've been to Athens before. But, um, I've never been to the actual Stoa uh, Poikile. Uh, there, are, there are some remains of the Stoa Poikile, which is where Stoicism got started. It's, it's not, they're not very impressive remains. Uh, it's nothing like the, yeah, the two major stores that you find in, uh, in Athens. It's nothing like a Parthenon. But I asked them, I told them, I, I want to go there. I want to take a look at it. Right? I want to be standing near where Zeno of Cytum started talking about this stuff. <laughs> 23 centuries ago. The painted porch, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Stoicism, yeah. Which is, of right. course, where the term stoicism comes from. All right. Thank you, Massimo, for joining me today. Visit my website at stoicsolutionspodcast.com, where you can connect with me on social media, find past episodes on many podcast platforms, and join my Discord chat server for interactive discussion. Support my work by becoming a donor through Patreon or PayPal. To access special rewards, including the ability to have upcoming guests answer your questions, custom podcast episodes, and personalized one-on-one discussions. Share, comment, like, subscribe, and leave reviews to help support my efforts. Email me with your thoughts, justinvacula at gmail.com. Podcast music, used with permission, is brought to you by Phil Giordana's symphonic metal group Fairyland from their album Score to a New Beginning. Find more information in the show notes. Oh,